All right, if you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. I am excited this morning to begin a new series of messages on the book of Psalms. The first message we're going to look at this morning is going to be entitled, The Two Paths. The Two Paths from Psalm 1. When I was a pastor in Missouri, I had the privilege of serving as a trustee for the International Mission Board. It's the mission sending agency of our denomination. It's where our resources are funneled to see missionaries go here and around the world. One of the interesting statistics that stuck out for my time as a trustee was that uh, the money that it took to get missionaries on the field. From the first point of contact, when somebody applies to go with the IMB as a full-time missionary, to actually getting them on the field, it cost the IMB $100,000. First point of contact, first phone call, first email form, to actually getting boots on the ground in the field, $100,000. Now that's time, energy, resources, training, lodging, travel. Once we get our missionaries on the field, there was an incredible expense associated with training them. Because once they got there, they had to learn the language and learn the culture. There was language and cultural acquisition that took years for many of them to develop and perfect. But the reason we were willing to spend all of those, that money, that time, and that resource to get our missionaries to that point is because we wanted them to be able to communicate the gospel in the heart language of the people they were ministering to. We wanted them to be able to communicate the gospel in a language that connected to the hearts of the people they were trying to lead to Christ and disciple and develop leaders and plant churches. And so that process was incredibly important because it created this on-ramp into people really being able to communicate the gospel clearly in a language people understood. The reason I mention that is because in many ways the book of Psalms is a training manual for how we talk to God. The book of Psalms is a compilation of verses and songs from the Old Testament that are meant to give us a divine vocabulary. You see, because what the Psalms are, sweet people, is they include just about every known human experience. There are psalms about praise when people are doing good and thanksgiving. There are songs of lament when people are sad and despondent. There are even the imprecatory psalms, which in Texas is, get them, God. There's all kinds of psalms in the Bible. What they're there to do is to teach us how to talk to God, how to relate to God in the various seasons and places we might find ourselves as human beings walking through this world. So what we're going to do through our Summer in the Psalms series is I'm going to survey the various types of psalms to teach us how to relate to God, how to talk to God in the various seasons we might find ourselves. If you've ever found yourself in the position when you feel like you just don't know what to say to God, If you ever found yourself in a position where you're like, I really don't know what to pray. I don't know how to talk to him. I don't know what I should say. The book of Psalms is for you. And what we're going to do to start is we're going to look at the first two Psalms. This week is Psalm 1. 
Next week will be Psalm 2, and these form kind of an introduction to the book. And what they do is they establish the kind of essential rules and guidelines for how we talk to God. I want to show you from Psalm 1, one of the essential elements in your life that you need if you're going to experience God in a fresh and a brand new way as we interact in this divine dialogue. With that in mind, would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word and as we see God through this Bible, through his word, through these books, through these songs, show us how to relate and talk to him. Psalm chapter 1 We read about the two ways. This is what God says. How happy or blessed is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams, that bears its fruit in its season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin." This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Would you pray with me, please? Fathers, we begin a new series of messages in a new book of the Bible. I pray, God, that you would open our minds and our hearts to hear what you have to say to us. God, I know even in the summer we have a lot going on, a lot of things that can distract us, but I pray that you would remove distraction and you would fix our minds and our hearts on you and what you have to say to us today. As you speak to us, Father, help us not just to be hearers of your word, but doers. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. I want to start by just giving a little bit of an overview of the blessed life. The blessed life. This verse says, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked. Now, Most of your translations will say blessed, and that's probably a better word, because this idea of blessing doesn't mean just feelings. It doesn't mean just a set of circumstances. It speaks to a position someone's in. It speaks to a position that drives a perspective that we're to have. In the context of the greater narrative of the Bible, this blessing that Psalm 1 mentions is the blessing of knowing God. It's the blessing of receiving favor and kindness that allows us to be in intimate relationship with God. If you remember back to the garden when Adam and Eve were there and they were first created before sin entered the world, the Bible says they walked with God in the cool of the day. There was a sense in which our original design as human beings was for us to be in this close, personal, intimate friendship, relationship with God as his child, as his son, as his daughter. Jesus talked about the blessed life in the New Testament. In Matthew 5, as he began the Sermon on the Mount, he said things like, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. The blessing the psalmist speaks of then 
is this life lived in the presence of God. It's a life lived with a hope and a joy that's connected to the promises God has made to us. And what we're meant to see right from the beginning of the book of Psalms is Psalm 1 stands as an introduction to this book because it's wanting us to recognize that what he's going to show us, what he's going to reveal to us actually shows us how we can experience this blessing in a profound way. How can you and I, as followers of Christ, as broken sinners saved by grace, walk in this blessedness that you and I have been given? What I want to suggest this morning to you is three quick things that you and I need in our lives, three steps that we've got to take if we're going to live in light of this blessedness that God promises us. The first is this, we must, if we're going to live in this blessedness, reject the wrong path. The first step is we must reject the wrong path. This passage talks about two paths, two ways, two roads that we can take. Verse 1, he lists the characteristics of the wrong path. Look back at it with me in your Bibles. It says, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the way or the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. This verse acknowledges that there is a way that leads and is driven by sin and sinful desires, a, an evil opposition to God and his ways. We know that this sin entered the world shortly after Adam and Eve were created when they rebelled against God and it's a a sickness that all of us have inherited. All of us have inherited this desire for self rather than our creator. It's why, as I've told you before, the most beautiful little girl in the whole wide world, Paige Allison Plumley. I know your kid's cute, but mine's way cuter, okay? It's why, even as a three-year-old, she will look up at me and manipulate her daddy, where did she learn how to do that? Did her mama teach her? No. Did her brother teach her? Maybe. But what's more reality is that she learned that because she came fully equipped with a desire for herself. We all have been given that desire. And what Psalm 1 outlines is that there's a progression that sin takes us down. Did you notice the progression here? He talked about first... Walking in the advice of the wicked. This is a picture of, of listening to sinful counsel. Listening to the wisdom of the world and following this wisdom that self is most important. That what you really need to do is follow your heart and do what feels good to you. When we follow that advice, notice secondly it leads to standing in the pathway with sinners. You see the advice and the counsel that we buy into shows up in how we live our lives, begins to change our behavior, and it ultimately leads to notice the third step, we sit in the company of mockers. I was so, sobering this week to prepare for this message and read. A lot of commentators see this mocker, this, or some of your translations might say scoffer, as the most dangerous type of sin because it's a hardening of the heart that leads to a laughing, a, a total rejection of the truth. It's somebody who scoffs ha, about the grace of God. 
somebody who looks with a, an unapproving kind of glance at the truths of the scriptures and finds them backwards or antiquated. And what he's saying is if we follow the path of sin, if we follow the path of serving ourselves, it eventually leads us to hardenings of our hearts, to a hardening of our heart to the point that we see God's truth as backwards or antiquated. We see this all over our culture. This past couple weeks, NPR, which is what you pay for, uh, by the way, government-funded radio, put out a press release, a guide for their reporters about how they were going to report on the abortion debate in our country. Now, you probably are aware, if you're following the news, that what's happening across this country is there is a doubling down in our country on the abortion debate. States like Georgia and Missouri are passing more and more intense pro-life laws. States like New York and Illinois are passing more radical abortion laws. And so NPR is putting out guidance for how they want their reporters to talk about it. And I want you to listen to what they said. They said the term unborn implies that there is a baby inside a pregnant woman, not a fetus. Babies are not babies until they are born. They're fetuses. Now, I could spend like a whole hour just talking about that sentence and what's wrong with that. But let me just say this. When you walk up to a pregnant woman, you don't ask her about her fetus. Right? Oh, how's your fetus doing? Are you having a boy fetus or a girl fetus? <laughs> now, it's laughable, right? It's insane is a word that I would use. Moral insanity to say that a baby's not a baby until it's born. But I'm telling you, what's happening in our culture is this hardening, this scoffing of the truth is leading to moral insanity. It's leading to people rejecting the truth, seeing the clear truth of, that's a baby. You call it a baby. What's wrong with you? Why are they doing that? Because there's a hardening. There's a, ha, you Christians. You believe that life starts at conception? Well, of course it does. It's life that God has begun in the womb. And so part of what we have to recognize when we look at this pathway of sinners is while it's sometimes easy to see that in our culture, it's very easy sometimes to identify that in the world around us. It's much harder sometimes to see that at work in our own lives. Because what the psalmist is warming, warning us of from the beginning is that there is a way, there's a path that leads to hardening in your life. Even as a Christian, that can happen. That can lead, especially in the area of habitual sin, if you're giving yourself to something over and over again, there's a way that you can desensitize yourself to the truth, to the seriousness of our sin. And so... What the psalmist wants us to recognize as we think about how we relate to God and how we have this divine dialogue and how the psalms help us to do that, he wants to raise the alert. He wants us to see very clearly the seriousness of our sin. It's dangerous. It's incredibly deceptive. And what's most dangerous about it 
is that it doesn't just stay isolated. It moves us to hardening our hearts against the truth. And so my question for you as we apply this principle to our lives is, do you see sin as that dangerous in your life today? Do you see the sin in your life that maybe you've made excuses for? Maybe that you've just resigned yourself, that it's just something you have to live with. Have you quit fighting against the sin that's God's clue revealed in your life? Psalm 1 is a sobering reminder that there's a way that we must reject if we're going to be in divine dialogue with our Savior, and it is the way that leads to this hardening in the life of sin. But the second step that this passage reveals is not just rejecting the wrong path, it is also embracing the right path. Because while the psalmist tells us about the wrong path and where it leads, he also tells us about what the right path actually is. Look at verse 2 and what it's characterized by. The blessed person is instead... His delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. That phrase, the Lord's instruction, it's probably initially referring to the Old Testament law, the first five books of the Bible. But as a principle, as we read it in the grander scale and the picture of the Bible, it applies to your entire Bible, this idea of an inspired, God-given word, he's saying that the blessed path is characterized by someone who delights in the word of God. And when I think about delight, I think about my kids. It's the difference between my children obeying me because I'm their parent or my children obeying me because they really think I'm right. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we've started to enact some new eating habits in the Plumley household. I don't know if you guys have boys in your house, but I don't know how you feed boys. Uh, they're going to put us in the poorhouse trying to feed a nine and a six-year-old. I never thought those people that little could eat that much, but it's happening. And so we've made some changes. And um, that has been met with whining and complaining. Any parents out there like whining? I want to ask some of you that have teenagers if it gets better, but I'm looking at you, and I don't think it does. <laughs> uh, I, don't think, I think the whining is kind of a ubiquitous thing for parenting. But you know what happened? After about 10 or 12 days, they began to notice some benefits to what we're asking them to do, and it actually has become easier because they're now obeying not just because we're telling them to, I'm your parent, do what I say, to where they actually begin to realize this is actually good for me. There's a benefit that I gain through this. What the word delight means is that we don't just see God's word as right, and he's God, and we have to do what he says because he's God, but that we also see his word as good for us. And if I can just appeal to parents in the room for a moment, our great challenge as moms and dads in 2019 is to help our children to see authority in general, but specifically God's authority as not just right, but as good. This is good for you. This will protect you. When you follow God's word, there's a delight, there's a joy that enters your life. 
parents, we have to frame God's word, not just in terms of correctness, but in terms of goodness and beauty. But he says, the one who delights in the word of God, notice what he says in the rest of verse 2, meditates on it day and night. And this doesn't mean that you walk around at work like this with your Bible. I'm sorry, I can't talk to you, boss, I'm reading my Bible. No, meditation does not mean just read. It means to take and deeply reflect on the word. That word meditate literally means to growl. I got to be honest, when I was preparing for this message, I said growl. What is it? How, why does meditate mean growl? And what you, you look at, if you look more deeply, is it's the picture of a dog gnawing on a bone, chewing it, marinating on it. So I had a dog growing up, and every once in a while she would get a bone. And it used to fascinate me that she would take that bone to a corner of the yard, and for hours, right, hours she would gnaw on that thing. And it's like, what is she doing? What she was doing was trying to get every square inch of flavor off that bone, Right? And that's what the picture here of meditation in the Word looks like for us. We're to take God's Word, we're to memorize it, we're to put it in our minds and our hearts, and we're to marinate, we're to chew on it, we're to think on it. See, because while you can't walk around like this at work, what you can do is recite Scripture to yourself in your mind and your heart. Meditation of the Word means that we're regularly dwelling on, reflecting on, thinking on the Word of God very deeply. When I do this, when I meditate on God's Word, look at the result in verse 3. Look at the picture here. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bear its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. Now, many commentators believe that Psalm 1 was actually one of the last psalms to be written, and it was written as a way of introducing the whole book of Psalms. Many believe that this psalm was written while the children of Judah, the nation of Judah, was in exile in Babylon. See, because while they were in Babylon, one of the things the Babylonians had perfected was this irrigation system. They had dug out canals that went all throughout their country. They planted these beautiful rows of trees. This picture of a tree is the person. The water is the word of God. But we need to understand the language here is not some random tree in the desert. It's a tree that's planted strategically and purposefully for care and for life. It, it, it's the picture of somebody whose roots, because of their meditation on the Word, are going down deep into God's life-giving source of strength and mercy. When we meditate, when we think deeply on God's Word, what begins to happen is the tree of our life, our behavior, our lives begin to change. Remember what we've talked about in the past. There's a connection in every human being between their head, their heart, and their hands. Romans 12 says, be renewed by the transforming of your mind. Let your mind be renewed and therefore your life be transformed. There's a transformation that the Word of God does. When I meditate on it in my mind, its effect in my life is that it changes my desires. 
It changes what I want and what I appetize, what I long for. And over time, when my desires change, my hands change, my behavior changes. That's the picture from Psalm 2 to Psalm 3. When we let God's word deeply penetrate into our minds and into our hearts, it changes us. What this means, very simply, sweet people, is this. The blessed life is the word immersed life. The key idea that kind of sums up this entire passage is if you want the blessed life, the life of not comfort and ease, but a life of enjoying God's goodness and grace in your life, immerse yourself, saturate your mind and your heart with the word of God. Let me flip that around. If you are trying to enjoy God's goodness apart from God's word, you will fail. The word of God, your Bible that sits open in your lap or open on your phone is absolutely essential for an intimate experience and relationship with God. I've told you guys before that the first year of marriage in the Plumley household was pretty tough. It was a tough first year for us as a couple. Shelly's on vacation, so I can talk a little bit more uh, intently about it. No, I, I get approval before anything I share about our family. Um, and one of the reasons it was a tough first year is because I'm a bonehead. There's a theological word for you, bonehead. I would do things that would hurt my wife's feelings. She would tell me that I'd hurt her feelings and I would totally misunderstand what she was trying to tell me. Because while she was telling me how she felt, she would use words like never or always. You know those superlative words that we throw around sometimes? And I, I initially in life wanted to be a lawyer. And so when we get into those conversations, the lawyer in me would kind of come out. And I would say, well, you said never, but technically like a week ago, I didn't actually do that. Anybody that's experienced a marriage knows that this was a classic rookie mistake, right? Because what I was doing is I was trying to lawyer my wife instead of empathize with my wife. And I had to learn that when I hurt her, when I was being a bonehead, I needed to first listen to her and understand what I had done before we, not that facts aren't important, we can talk about those, but the first thing I needed to do was to empathize with her and understand where she was coming from. Now, after we figured that out, it was like the clouds parted, rainbows emerged, birds began to sing, the sun began to shine. It was like this new phase in our relationship because we'd learned how to communicate Better, I had learned how to communicate with my wife. We didn't write these principles down, but it was as if we'd come to kind of this agreed upon set of principles for how we talked to each other, how we related to each other, how she gave me constructive criticism, which is sometimes hard for guys to hear. We learned how to do that. Now, I would submit to you, if I quit using that kind of set of principles, we would go back to having serious problems. We would not thrive as a couple. Now, here's what I want you to see. God's word is like those principles for your relationship with God. You cannot function without the word of God in your relationship with God. 
It gives you the principles. It gives you the vocabulary. It gives you the way that you relate to God and he relates to you. So often I think we think about the Bible just in a one-way terms in communication. We often think about it, well, I read the Bible and God speaks to me through the Bible. But understand that one of the ways meditating on the scriptures will change your life is if you learn to pray scripture back to God. You ever, you ever tried to pray and you found yourself with your mind kind of wandering? You ever tried to pray and you're like, I'm having a hard time staying focused here. I've got 50,000 things I'm thinking about. One of the advantages to the book of Psalms is you make these words your words as you pray to God. When you pray scripture back to God, one of the reasons that's incredibly powerful is it connects you to the heart of God. You're declaring things back to him that he said to you. Well, is there any precedent for that in the Bible? Think about how many times people reminded God of promises he'd made to them. If you've been reading through the Bible with us, you know we've been reading through you know, the, the first five books of the Bible. We've made our way to Deuteronomy. How many times has Moses staved off destruction of the children of Israel by saying, but God, you promised that you were going to do this. Now think about this with me for a second. Do you think God forgot? Oh, I forgot that I made that promise to you, Moses. Let me go. No, we have an all-knowing, all-powerful God. He didn't forget anything. So what's Moses doing? Moses is using the word of God to communicate to God, to talk to God, to relate to God. When you and I take God's word and make that a part of our prayer life, make that a part of what we meditate on and think on as we talk to our creator, it changes the dynamics of our relationship. It focuses our heart on what God's heart is about. It focuses us in a powerful way and I believe when that happens, we experience God's intimacy and closeness in unparalleled kind of fashion. So let me ask you this question. Application time. Do you see the Bible in your life as essential for your relationship with God? Do you see your Bible not as something you just grab on your way to church on Sundays not as something you just pull out when you're in a crisis, but do you see your Bible as important as the food you eat every single day? Now, unless some of you are fasting or doing some kind of crazy diet, most of you today are going to eat something. In fact, probably very few of us go very many days without eating something. You would not go a whole day without eating food. But what I want you to know for the believer is that the Word of God is just as vital. It's more important for your soul than food is to your body. Amen. So we're, half, we're almost halfway through the year, and can you believe that? It's like June. Where did the first five months of this year go? And early on in the year, I challenged you to try to read through the Bible this year. How are you doing with that? How's that going? I know we're in Deuteronomy now. Some of you are struggling, or we're in Joel now, and so we're having some, maybe some challenges. Again, please remember, if, if you need help understanding what you're reading, I'm here to help you. Some of you have emailed me questions. Do not hesitate to do that. If you've fallen off the horse, get back on it. Well, I'm going to have to catch up on two months of reading. Don't do that. Don't try to catch up. Start right where we are today 
and get back in God's Word. If you need a reading guide, if you're new to our church and you'd like to read through the Bible with us this year, we'd love for you to do that. But what Psalm makes clear is that if we're going to have a dialogue with our Creator, if we're going to interact and fellowship with Him in an intimate way, we cannot do it apart from our Bibles. But in case we're not getting that, this passage ends in the third point of my message with the results of the wrong path. If we're going to live the blessed life God has given us, we don't just reject the wrong and embrace the right. We have to see where the wrong path leads us. Look at verses 4 through 6. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. The illustration changes very dramatically from a tree that bears fruit, that's well watered, well supplied, to chaff which is when you've got your crop and you're pulling away the excess. It's the excess that you throw in the ground or you throw in the trash heap. Chaff, as he mentions, blows away. There's no root to chaff. It's weightless and therefore useless. This is a description of wicked people who have no root in God's life-giving truth, and as a result, they do not know his ways. This kind of existence is empty, You know, when you look out at the world and you see people who don't know Christ, oftentimes it's easy to think, well, those people look pretty happy. It's easy to think, even as the psalmist is going to say at times, it looks like those people are doing better off than believers are doing at times. But what we don't see is the heart level. We don't see what's going on within them. Because what we know is that every single person has a God-shaped hole in their life, and all of us are filling it with something. And so when he describes the wicked like chaff, he's saying they're doing things, they're acting, but there's no root to them. There's no substance. There's no satisfaction in their life. They're constantly running from one thing to the next, blown to and fro by the winds of this world. And if that were not enough, the psalmist says the most dangerous, most damaging, rather, characteristic of the wicked is that they fall under judgment. Look back in your Bibles, verse 5. The wicked will not stand up under judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. End of verse 6. The way of the wicked leads to ruin. See, there's a destination this path takes you down. The destination is destruction. I want to be clear. The destruction that's listed here in Psalm 1, that the entirety of the scripture bears witness to is not some random impersonal kind of force that destroys human beings. What this passage alludes to is that the destruction they will fall under is the wrath of a holy and a just God. God's wrath, his white hot anger is poured out on sin. One of the plays that The Bible talks about this is in Joel. If you've been reading through the Bible with us, you've made your way to Joel. Joel talks about a day of the Lord that's coming. 
This day of the Lord is not just a single day. It's code for an event, a series of events that's going to take place. Listen to some of the things that Joel said this past week about the day of the Lord and the coming destruction. Woe because of that day, for the day of the Lord is near and will come as devastation from the Almighty. Joel 2, verses 1 through 2. Blow the horn in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all residents of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. In fact, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and total darkness, like the dawn spreading over the mountains. A great and strong people appear, such as never existed in ages past, and will never again in all the generations to come. What these verses tell us is there's a day coming when God, the judge of all the earth, is going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to separate the crop from the chaff, and he will judge every single person who's ever lived. And what the Bible tells us here is that there is a path that leads to God's judgment, his just punishment of the wicked. And you say, well, that doesn't seem very loving. Remember, remember, God is love, but love always commits you in two directions. Love commits you to support and protect something, but it also commits you to oppose something. I love my wife. I would try to stop anyone trying to hurt her. God loves holiness and purity. He loves his son. And anyone who rejects those things, he opposes. Don't forget that, yes, God is loving, but he is just and wrathful towards our sin. The reason the wrath of God doesn't make sense to us as Americans living in 2019 The reason oftentimes it doesn't seem that the punishment fits the crime is because we don't understand the gravity of our sin. We don't fully comprehend what our sin looks like to God. The reason God will punish sin in an everlasting, unending hell is because that's exactly what sin deserves. The question that the psalmist therefore puts in front of us as we begin this journey through the book of Psalms is simply this. Which path are you on? Which path are you on? Jesus talked about these two roads as well in the Gospels. He talked about a broad road that leads to destruction. And he talks about a narrow road that leads to life. The reality is there are only two options before God. There's the path of the wickedness. There's the path of righteousness. Oh, I know our culture wants to tell us that there are many ways to God. There are a lot of different options. You just have to pick your own. It doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you believe something, that's garbage. That's baloney. It's not true because it doesn't matter what you believe if your problem has not been addressed. Muhammad, Buddha, 
the secular prevailing worldview that worships self today, none of those things can save you because none of those people have died for you. None of those people have taken your sin and the punishment that you should have been given. There's only one person that's done that, and his name is Jesus Christ. See, the problem with every other way is that it cannot address your sin problem. The problem with every other world religion is it doesn't matter how hard you try, it doesn't matter how much you adhere yourself to those principles, unless you are changed from the inside out, you cannot be saved. Two plus two is four. Every other answer is wrong. Five, three, I don't care what number you come up with. If you try to answer two plus two is four with any other answer, it's wrong. In the same way, any other answer than Jesus is fundamentally wrong. So here's what I want you to know, and this is really important that you listen very carefully. All of us are born on this wicked path. That's where every one of us start. Even my beautiful three-year-old little girl starts on this wicked path. And the only way she moves to this path of blessing and righteousness and being declared innocent before a holy and righteous God is if somebody pays her debt for her sin. The way you move from the path of wickedness to the path of righteousness is by receiving by faith the finished work of Jesus Christ in your behalf. He died for you. He rose again on the third day to say, you can be forgiven. If you turn, turn from your sin and believe that he took the punishment that you and I should have been given. Psalm 1 stands as a sobering picture, a gate, a crossroads that all of us have to address. My prayer is this. If you do not know Jesus today, if you're on this path of wickedness, that you would repent and you would trust Christ today and be forgiven. For those of you that do know Christ, understand that this gateway, it confronts us with every decision we make, every moment of behavior. We are either living consistently with our position as people of blessing and we're following this path of righteousness or we're following the path of wickedness. Even as a believer, there are moments when we can follow the wrong path. Some of us today, our response to this message may be to repent of areas in our lives where we've strayed, where we've allowed ourselves to follow the wrong path. My prayer for you is that you and I would recognize that if we're going to relate to God personally and intimately through this blessing he's given us, that we would do so through living and learning God's word. Would you pray with me, please? Father, in Jesus' name, we give